Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and you are tuned in to another installment of the Double-Edged Sword Program. Broadcasting to you from downtown Hayes, Kansas. We're glad to have you here again with us for another installment of the Double-Edged Sword Program. We are definitely cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. That's what we try to do here on every episode of the Double-Edged Sword Program. For this installment, I kind of was thinking of some stuff the other day. And, you know, we, we toss words around all the time. And we go to church and we hear churchy words. And we go to work and we hear business words and things like that. And a lot of times we hear these things, and when you hear the word, like you might hear a word like glory or prayer or praise or faith or something like that in church, and you go, well, I'm in church. I expect to hear those words. And then you just kind of tune things out because we just figure, well, it's going to mean the same thing it meant the last time I heard it, which wasn't that much. Well, what I want to do on this installment of Double-Edged Sword is look at some of these words and see what they really mean in the context of the scriptures, in the context of just the broader context of our faith, so that with the, the goal is, is that hopefully the next time you go to Mass and you hear these words being tossed about, either you know they're part of a reading or part of a sermon or something, you can really think about them and get the, get the full punch of what they're supposed to mean. You know, we might start off with a word like glory. Okay, we talk about the glory of God. You know, the heavens are filled with the glory of God and so on. And in a certain sense, I think we think of glory as some kind of a bright light or sort of a resplendence. You know, something that really separates God from us, that makes, you know, God, God and, and us not God. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I think, though, that when we look at what glory is, we're kind of confused about it. Because for one thing... I think as human beings, we think of glory as something that's kind of bigger than life. You know, you look at your favorite athlete or celebrity or so on, and and we think that's what it is. And maybe that's what it is for us, but it's not for God because God doesn't need it. All right. And so, you know, I think, again, I think we're kind of schizophrenic. We're kind of kind of confused about this. We catapult people to the heights of popularity and stardom. And while they're on their way up, you know, we cheer them along. We think, oh, isn't this great? Look, you know, so-and-so is selling out stadiums full of concert people or so-and-so's got, you know, this many RBIs or touchdowns or whatever. But then we relish it when we watch them go down in flames. You know, when someone gets busted in some kind of a drug scandal or somebody gets arrested for a DUI or something, you know, that same person that we were cheering a minute ago, we kind of take some kind of a, a smug sort of, um, of, of satisfaction in seeing them go down, you know, faster than they came up. And so I don't really think that's what glory can be. That isn't what it, what it can be about. If we look at it from God's point of view, and we look at we look at how God deals with His glory. I think that probably the the closest thing we might be able to come to it here on Earth is, and again, our hearts are kind of warm by this. We like this when we see people do it. Is you might have you know you have someone who who leaves Smallville, Kansas somewhere, and goes off and becomes a you know a world class baseball player, and but then he goes back to Smallville and spends the afternoon coaching the local little league team and signing baseballs and signing autographs and things like that. That when the person who achieves greatness can now come and associate with the unwashed, you know, associate with the folks that are less than he, that somehow, you know, we think that this is a good thing. And it is. You know, I'm not going to deny for a minute that it isn't. 
But I think that when we look at it from God's point of view, then we ask, what does the glory of God look like? I think that we're kind of probably tempted to go, well, it means God reigning in his heavens, sitting on his throne, and he bathed in eternal light, and the God's, you know, again, sitting you know, on his throne, and we dare not look at him because he is so other and so transcendent and, and so glorious, to use the word. Well, that's what we might think. The thing of it is, is you have to remember, kind of like that baseball player that goes back to his home neighborhood, you know, the baseball player, he's proved everything he needs to prove. You know, he's, he's the best at what he does. And so going back and hanging out with the little people, as it were, is something that he can do. And, and again, it's, it's no skin off his back because he's already proven everything there is to prove with the big people. Why not go back and hang out with the little people? Well, I think that's kind of the same thing. We can understand that. We can understand what glory means from God's point of view. St. Paul tells us in the letter to the Romans that we should put away ambitious thoughts and associate with those who are lonely. That's in Romans 12, 16. And so instead of jockeying for position with the people who are good-looking, popular, and powerful, we seek to be with people who are not those things. Then we are imitating what Jesus did, who put aside his status as God to become and be like one of us. So again, we can see the second person of the Trinity when he takes on our human form and comes as a poor person to live with other poor people, he's doing what St. Paul says. You know, he associates with those who are lowly. He's like the baseball player who puts aside the glamour of professional baseball and comes to hang out with a bunch of dirty kids that have been out playing in the dirt lot, playing baseball all afternoon. And I think that, you know, there is then where we get kind of a, a clue as to what God's glory is from God's point of view. Our point of view does not matter. It's God's point of view. And from God's point of view, he is the most glorious when he is the closest to his people, right? Again, kind of like the baseball player coming back and visiting with the little kids. And so whenever God is at his most glorious, when he is most with his people, is when the second person of the Trinity, when God the Son, is taking his last couple of breaths on the cross, And see, that just takes the whole worldly notion of glory and turns it on its head. We think of someone in glory as someone who has all the accolades and the cheers of the crowds and of the media and of, you know, someone who's on the the big movie screen and driving a nice car, has a collection of expensive sports cars in a big house, a swimming pool and all that. We think that as being glorious. But we're the ones that are on our heads. God's the only one who's standing straight up. And so whenever God comes in and becomes one of us and then dies on the cross as one of us, according to the Gospel of St. John, if you read that one carefully, and again, by God's own reckoning, that is when God is at his most glorious, when he's all beat up and bleeding to death and dying a terrible death on that cross. And so, therefore, when we try to imitate that example, when we do as St. Paul said and associate with those who are lowly, when we put aside the ambitions to be with those who have social status and power and prestige and influence and so on, and instead associate with people who can't really do anything for us. If you know, I go and visit the people in the nursing home or I go visit someone who's homebound or you go over next door and clean out the, the gutters of the elderly couple next door who can't really do anything for you, that's glory. And again, it just takes the whole human notion, our Americanized notion of what glory is and just completely turns it upside down because actually, if you can kind of follow me on this, you know, our notion of glory is what's upside down. God's notion of glory is what is right side up. And so when we look at God's notion of glory, which is right side up, it takes what we think of as glory and turns it upside down, if that makes any sense. That's kind of confusing, but hopefully it'll kind of get you to think there a little bit. 
So I think, you know, we kind of start off with this idea of glory and what glory means. Maybe the second thing we want to look at is prayer. You know, we hear that a lot. That's a good churchy word, prayer. Oh, well, you know, we're called to, we should be, you know, spending time in prayer. We should pray. Let's pray about that and so on. You know, we hear that kind of stuff all the time. Well, I think that, again, to really understand what prayer is, we should dissect that word and see what it really means. So the next time we hear about it, it'll, you know, kind of resonate with us. And it'll be more than just some, again, some kind of empty churchy syllable. So let's take a look at prayer. What is it? Is it reciting Hail Marys? It can be if we're devoutly reciting the rosary and meditating upon the mysteries with the Hail Marys as kind of, you know, playing like in the background music to keep us from getting distracted. St. Teresa of Avila talks about prayer, and she says that it's kind of like this. St. Teresa compares prayer to watering a field or watering a large garden. And she says, first of all, what you can do is you can go to the well with some kind of a bucket or a container, and you can draw the water out of the well and go water the garden. It's a lot of work. The next way is to use a water wheel where you turn the crank on the water wheel and you know, the wheel's got the big buckets on it that goes around and it would pick up the water out of you know, some you know, lake or something and then dump it into whatever it is you want to water. As, and of course, you, know, you get more water for less work, but it's still quite a bit of work. The third way would be to have a diverter valve on a, um, a irrigation canal of some kind. You've got this irrigation canal and you throw the little diverter valve and the water goes down and waters your field. And, of course, the fourth and the very best way to water the field is to let it rain. And so I think that, you know, we look at these kind of um, metaphors that St. Teresa has for prayer, and we can see then that, um, you know, that, that prayer starts off as a lot of work. It's something we have to force ourselves to do. There might be a certain kind of element of drudgery to it and so on. But as we stay with it and we keep going, well, then eventually, you know, prayer is going to get easier and easier. And ultimately, to where you get to where with the rain falling down the field, where, we're, you know, for our prayer, we're not doing anything and God is doing it all. All right. Now, that might sound, again, kind of, kind of pie in the sky. But I think that if we look at it, that, you know, prayer is not supposed to be laborious. But like any other discipline, before it gets easy, we have to submit ourselves to the disciplines necessary to get there. The problem is, for many of us, our prayer life is like a person who wants to be, wants to um, have the physical condition of a great athlete, but only exercises once or twice a week and only eats healthy food occasionally, you know. Fulton Sheen, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, kind of a personal favorite and hero of mine, he, you know, he spent hours and hours. I mean, he made a daily holy hour. Some of us think we're doing pretty good if we go to the Adoration Chapel for an hour a week. Well, Archbishop Sheen spent an hour a day in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament. And he came to the conclusion that prayer is kind of like a dog sitting at the master's feet. You know, the master is at the table doing whatever it is he's doing, whether he's reading a book or if he's working on his hobby or whatever. And the dog is just kind of sitting down there content just to be with the master. That ultimately is kind of what our prayer should look like, is just be a contentedness of being in the presence of the master. It doesn't happen overnight. I think a lot of people probably go their whole life long thinking, well, as long as I just read the Bible and you know say my rosary and go to church on Sunday, that's my prayer. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good start. But I think we have to recognize it for what it is, and that is that it is just a start. What about praise? We hear that a lot. You know, people talk about glory and praise. You, know, you remember back in the 70s or 80s, there was a song, a hymnal, a Catholic hymnal out called Glory and Praise. Well, again, I don't know that they really thought much of what glory was. What about praise? You know, someone may praise us for a job well done 
you know, we like the look of satisfaction on a young person's face when we can praise them for something they have done well. It was always very edifying and, and gratifying to me when I was teaching high school at Thomas More Prep. Had a couple of my students. I would always tell them that you can always tell the smart kids, not so much because they know the right answers, but as soon as you can tell how smart the kids are by the kind of questions that they ask. And once in a while, I'd have a young man or young lady that would ask me a question, and I would just have to say, oh, you are so smart. That is a very good question. And when you see that little smiling look on their face, that beaming look on their face when you tell them how smart they are, that's praise. That's a good thing. We know that just a few words of praise from the right person is a great motivator for us. If there's someone whose opinion I value tells me if they're happy with, with the work I've done, it makes my day, right? Well, the thing of it is, does God need his people telling him that he is great, powerful, just, and loving, etc.? Is God's ego stroked by our acclamations of his goodness and perfection? Of course not. In fact, if you, um, if you listen to the, the preface, preface number four for daily mass, the, the preface that comes right before the Eucharistic prayer, before we say the holy, holy, number four says, you have no need of our praise, yet our desire to thank you is itself your gift. It's acknowledging, you know, we acknowledge in our prayer at mass that God does not need our praise, but we do it anyway. Well, why? Well, we are bound to praise God. The reason why we have a religious duty to praise God is because we need to be constantly reminded that God is just, merciful, powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all those perfections of God that weave their way into the prayers of praise that we sing and we say of him, either from the book of the Psalms or you know more contemporary compositions that people come up with. We must constantly be reminded ourselves of these perfections of God. And so we sing God's praises, all right? Constantly praising God reminds us that he is God and that we are not, all right? That's the big thing. You look at much, much of the self-destruction that we see in our culture, it comes from thinking that we are God. We engage in mass murder in the concentration camps, in old Joe Stalin's Siberian prison, and then the gulag, as they used to call it, the abortion clinics, all this mass murder that we do, we do because we think that we're God, and since we are God, it's up to us to decide who lives and dies. Then, being our own self-proclaimed God, we, you know, we think we can even redefine marriage. Now, even on a more benevolent but misguided level, we think we can solve all of our vocation shortage by coming up with clever marketing schemes, which have always produced nothing. All right. So you look at all these areas of life where people up until 100 years ago or so would say, well, that's just God's domain. You know, you let God take care of that stuff. That's not for us to mess with. Well, ever since we bought into the idea during the endarkenment, as I call it, they, the, 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 the textbooks still call it the enlightenment, but I call it the endarkenment because all it did was just made it made for a very, very dark world. But during the, the 16th and 17th centuries and the 18th centuries, when the enlightenment came about, mostly because people thought, well, now that we understand medicine better and science better and calculus and astronomy and all these things, well, you know, we human beings are just so clever, we're just going to solve everything, all of our problems, whether they're social, economic, spiritual, technological, or whatever, with our own brains. And that's turned out to be just a bit totally devastating upon the entire world. Praise is the healthy and necessary recognition that there is a God in heaven and we are not him. So again, I think you know, when we look at this whole idea of praise, we see that God doesn't need to be told how great he is. He already knows that. 
God doesn't need to be told how loving he is. He already knows that. He doesn't need to be told about his justice and his mercy. His justice and mercy are not attributes of God. God is justice itself. God is mercy itself. God is love itself. And so God doesn't need to be told about that. It's our songs of you know praising God that reminds us that God has those attributes and has them in infinite perfection, and we do not. And so that's the thing I think that, that we need to think about with praise. You know, the problem is, is if you look at a lot of the contemporary compositions of some of the hymns that we're seeing at church, a lot of those hymns betray an endarkenment idea that we are God. A lot of those hymns, we're singing praises to ourselves. We're, we're telling ourselves how wonderful we are in those hymns rather than humbly submitting to God. Maybe we'll, we'll do a double-edged sword on those sometimes. I'll, I'll go get the hymnal and you can go to your parish and tear them all out of the book. That's what you should probably do. But that's a different project. Then what about the kingdom of God? This is a great one. You know, people talk about, you will know, say, well, you know, the kingdom of God, this, the kingdom of God, that. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God all over the place. The thing of it is, it's a puzzle, I think. In many places in the Synoptic Gospels, and primarily we read about the, the, the statement kingdom of God shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It shows up a bunch in the Acts of the Apostles because Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And actually it shows up most in the Gospel of St. Luke. There's only a couple of references to it in the Gospel of St. John. That's in John 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Also again in St. Paul, we get these, um, these, these ideas of Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. The thing of it is, is if we look at some of these, and I got a whole bunch of them here, and I'm not going to read them all. If Jesus says, for example, strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be given to you as well in Matthew 6, 33, all right? Or if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. There were people who were accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Satan, casting out demons with the help of demons. And Jesus says, nope, you know, I'm doing it by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And this is the classic one everybody knows from Matthew 19, 24. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. All right. The Gospel of St. Mark, first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of St. Mark is, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And then he tells the apostles in Mark 4, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. All right. Then he has an, a number of, of analogies about the kingdom of God. He says, you know, when he talks about the scattering of the seed, he says, the kingdom of God is a son would scatter seed in the ground. He doesn't know how it grows, but again, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but as, you know, the, the water and the sunlight hits it, you know, the guy comes out and little by little his crop comes up. Or, you know, he talks about the mustard seed. To what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds, which planted in the ground grows up to be the biggest of shrubs and the birds of the air come and build their nests in its branches. You know, the mustard seed. All right. And so when we look at all these various aspects of the kingdom of God, he tells us whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter into it. All right. We look at all these analogies and stuff that Jesus tells us. But you know what? He never tells us what it is. And he even makes it a little bit more kind of difficult. It says, um, it says, once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming. This is in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not coming in things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Jesus says it's already here, all right? Kind of strange. Again, we go into the Acts of the Apostles, 
It just talks about the various apostles talking about the kingdom of God. Then in letter of the Romans, chapter 14, St. Paul tells us, The kingdom of God is not about food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Corinthians 4, The kingdom of God depends not on talk, but on power. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 6, 10, Jesus kind of says the same thing where he talks about the, uh, and he says the same thing in, in letter to the Galatians chapter 5. This is just kind of a, a condensed version of, if you want to read the full thing, go to Galatians 5, chapter 5, verses 19 and following. But um, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, that means people who have sex outside of marriage, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, again, Paul tells us that, but he doesn't really say what it is. In um, 1 Corinthians 15, when St. Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead, what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, all right? So again, as we kind of go through all these various references, in, primarily again in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the Acts of the Apostles, in the writings of St. Paul, we have all kinds of analogies. We're told what the kingdom of God is like, but we're never really told what the kingdom of God is. And so I think, again, when we go to church and we hear people talking about the kingdom of God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and so on, well, what does it mean? What exactly is it? What's it supposed to be? Well, Jesus and St. Paul both say it's already here. Um, We might say that's a bunch of pious baloney because the world is pretty messed up, all right? But I think that what we have to understand is, is, you know, again, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a measure of yeast that a woman measures into three measures of flour and kneads it until the whole mass of dough begins to rise, that probably gives us kind of the, the clearest idea, I think, of what the kingdom of God is with that little metaphor. Think about this. Worldwide, when you look over ever since September 11th, actually it's been before that, it's been since the 70s, that the Islamic terrorists have just been kind of having their heyday around the whole world. And we're told over and over again, and I have no reason to expect any of this, but this is probably true, that the total percentage of Muslims around the world that make up, you know, these terrorist wackos is probably less than 1% of the Muslim world, that most Muslims just want to raise their families and go to church and live in peace and, you know, put food on the table and live to see their grandchildren and things like that. I think that's what, you know, most of them want. But you've got this tiny, tiny fractional minority somewhere that has been able to turn the whole world on its head. Quite remarkable. You know, you look here in the United States, all of the responsible studies say that the the percentage of gay people in the country is less than 3%. And in fact, it's less than the the margin of error in, in most elections. And so how is it that a tiny minority of one and a half to 3% at the most of people in this country have been able to get a stranglehold on elections, on the court system, on Supreme Court decisions, and things like that. How has he been able to do that? Well, I think that probably for some help, we might look at Jesus' parable of the dishonest steward, which I will paraphrase. I'm not going to read out of the Holy Writ. But, you know, Jesus tells the story of this guy that the his boss has been doing an auditing of the books and is going to fire him. And um, he says, well, i got to make friends before I leave. Otherwise, I'll have to go dig ditches, which I don't want to do that. And so he calls in all the boss's creditors that owe him money, and um, he tells them that they can just pay back a fraction of what they owe. And so that way, when the boss fires him, these people will be his friends. It says when the boss comes in and finds out what he did, it says the boss gives him credit for having been enterprising. 
And I think, you know, as, as listening to Jesus, you're kind of going, now, wait a minute, Jesus, you're telling us you're holding up as an example of virtue in one of your parables, some guy who did something dishonest. That never made a whole lot of sense to me whenever I used to hear that when I was a little kid going to church. But later on, Jesus explains what he's saying. He says the deal is, he says, why? Because the this-worldly take more initiative in dealing with their own kind than do the children of the light. To put that into the context of what we're talking about here, we sit back in dismay and we ask ourselves, good golly, how can 1.5% of the population, you know, the gay movement, successfully turn the institution of marriage on its head? I can tell you why. Because sodomy means more to the gay population than marriage means to everybody else. That's the only explanation. They are so motivated, they have so much initiative to get what they want in forcing the culture not just to accept but to celebrate the lifestyle of sodomy that they've got so much initiative and so much get up and go and so much energy, they're winning the day. And one of the things I pretty much figured out This isn't to say that all of the people that make laws and rules and stuff are bad people because they're not. Most of them are striving to do the very, very best they can. But our culture, where our culture is falling apart is we have long since given up on the idea of trying to do what is right and good. Anymore, the people who win the day are the people who show up and make the most noise. You might have figured that out. Sometimes you see stuff and you go, wow, I never you know, quite put it in those words, but that's exactly what's going on. Think about what's gone on in the last 20 years or so. Who are the people who carry the day? Who are the ones who get what they want? It's not the ones who get up and say, look, this is the right thing to do, and now I'm going to convince you why it is the right thing to do. They can't. If you look at the abortion crowd, you look at the radical feminist crowd, you look at the radical gay crowd and so on, if they were to try to get what they want, by convincing everybody else that what they want is good, they would never get it. And they know it. Everybody knows it. And so what they do, what they have figured out is if you want to get what you want, you show up and you make noise. And the the rest of us kind of sit back and I don't think it's because we're lazy. I think it's because we have too many other worthwhile things to do. You know, we have to raise our families and run our businesses and teach our classes and things like that. And so we're just kind of at a loss whenever we see this happening. But getting back to the whole idea of the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God supposed to be? It is supposed to be the world being run as if Christ himself were running it. And what he tells us is, is that it doesn't take that much of us to get it going. When you look at the fact that the entire Christian movement got started with the 12 apostles, 12 against the rest of the world, 12 against the Roman Empire, they were able to do it. Why? Because they were that leaven, because they wanted to see the kingdom of God flourish here on earth. They wanted to see the Christian message be spread across the earth in such a way that it would be the fulfillment of what our Lord taught them and what his dream was. The thing that is, the reason why it's not happening now, quite simply, is we don't want it. I think that um, C.S. Lewis has kind of an interesting thing. He says, most of us have been inoculated with Christianity to immune us, to make us immune from the real thing. Probably most of you know that if you get a, the polio vaccine or the flu vaccine, give you a shot of the, of the weakened version of that virus so that your, your immune system can code for it and then attack it and kill it so that if you're ever attacked by the real virus, now your body knows what that is and it can go after it. Well, um, C.S. Lewis kind of takes that and says, well, what's happened is every one of us has been given kind of a weakened version of Christianity that keeps us immune from buying into the real thing. 
And I think that whenever we talk about the, the kingdom of God, you know, we are the leaven, the mustard seed, etc. And just as if a, a few bad people can have a tremendous effect on the world, why cannot so many more good people? There are a lot more church-going Catholics out there than there are practicing homosexuals. Why are they getting their way? Because they're showing up and demanding what they want. And I think, you know, we just have to, you know, get off our duffs and get out there and demand what we want, too. And um, we, we could probably carry the day easily because there's so many more of us. So I think we're going to take a little break there as we talk about these words. I got three more words that we're going to do when we get back from the break. The big one, and the one I'm saving for last, is worship. That's a big one. And um, we'll get back to that in just a sec after the little break here, I suppose. So everybody just sit tight. Again, I am Father Fred Gatch, and you're listening to the Double-Edged Sword Program. in just a second. Hey troops, we are back. This is the Double-Edged Sword Program. Catholic Radio and the Double-Edged Sword Program. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and we're glad to be with you here for another installment of the Double-Edged Sword Program. So we've been talking about words. Um, we looked at words like prayer and praise and kingdom of God and things like that, those churchy words that get thrown around in church all the time, kind of trying to figure out, well, what do these words really mean? Really trying to give some meaning and hang some meat on them there a little bit, trying to enflesh them a little bit. So the next time we see them in a hymn or hear them at church or hear them in a reading or something, we won't just kind of yawn and go, oh, yeah, it's one of those church words again and not think about it. The last few words I want to talk about are works, heart, and worship. Works is a really important one because, especially in the New Testament, and one of the things I've pretty much figured out is that when we use the same word to describe totally different realities, you got a problem, okay? It's kind of like, you know, all trees have a trunk. Elephants have a trunk, therefore an elephant is a tree. Well, you know, that's ridiculous. Why? Because you have two different things, tree trunks and elephant trunks, and you have the same word, trunk, you know? And so it kind of makes for a confusion. Works, the reason why that turns into a huge confusion in the New Testament is because whenever St. Paul was writing most of his stuff, we have to keep in mind that whenever these things were being written, they were being written for people whose Christian faith was very new to them. For most of us, our Christian faith is all that we have ever known. And we've been brought up in a culture that has never known anything but Christianity. It's quickly forgetting it, but it's, it's pretty much it. That's all we've ever known as Kansans and Americans is Christianity, you know, whether we're Catholic or Protestant or whatever. But the problem is, is that when you go back and you look at the writings of St. Paul in their original context, all over the place in the letter to the Galatians and in 1 Corinthians and the letter to the Romans, and again, I'm not going to read all these because there's a zillion of them, but I'm just going to sum it up by St. Paul saying over and over again, we hold that we are saved by faith apart from works. And sometimes he says works prescribed by the law, works the law, and so on. So St. Paul says we are saved by faith apart from works, all right? 
But then he'll turn right around and say, we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, for we will be judged according to our works. Or as Jesus says in the book of Revelation, behold, I am coming soon. It's in Revelation 21. I am coming soon and I will repay everyone according to his works. Or in Matthew 17, where Jesus says, the son of man is coming with all of his angels and he will repay every man according to his works. Now, here's the deal then. When you got St. Paul says, we're saved by faith apart from works. Where, you know, in Romans chapter 10, verse 8 and following, St. Paul says, if we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved because we're saved by faith apart from works. But then again, St. Paul will turn right around and say, we are going to be judged according to our works. Okay, well, what does works mean? Well, we'll come up with a real imaginative system here. We'll talk about works number one, works number two, and works number three. All right? Not very creative, but what the heck. Works number one. In the original context in which St. Paul meant that, works number one was abiding by all the details of the laws of Moses. Because back in those days, there were folks who thought, okay, in order for me to be a Christian, I got to be a a good Jew first. And then Christianity is the icing on the cake for Judaism. And so a lot of folks were thinking, what I need to do is I need to adopt the Jewish ways. I need to have my male son and my male children circumcised. I need to adopt the Jewish dietary restrictions, abide by the Jewish purification rituals, attend the Jewish feast days and things like that. And on top of that, then there will be baptism and Eucharist and all that sort of thing. Well, St. Paul says no. St. Paul says you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ apart from these works of the law. So what does works number one mean? Works number one means such things as circumcision, dietary restrictions, purification rituals, observing the Jewish feast days and things like that, right? I mean, it doesn't mean the Ten Commandments. I mean, the Ten Commandments are still very, very much in force. But you might notice as Christians, we do not have to be circumcised. We can eat pork. You know, we don't have to wash our hands in a certain way before we eat, although, you know, we should wash our hands some way, but not in the, in the, in the way prescribed by the Jewish purification rituals and so on. And so we don't have to observe the Jewish feast days, although that might be kind of fun sometimes, but we don't do that. And so that's works number one, those works prescribed by the law of Moses that Christians do not have to follow. Then Jesus turns around and says, but you will be judged according to your works. Okay, well, what are those works? Those works are the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Do we feed the hungry, clothe the naked, respect our parents, visit the sick, you know, and things like that. Those are the works that we're going to be judged by. Now, that is that's an important distinction to make because you still got people to this day when our old pal Marty Luther takes Romans 117 completely out of context. In Romans 17, you know, Marty was reading that and it says, you know, for the righteous man shall live by faith. And then Marty says, that's the, that's the solution. That's the deal. That's the, the answer to all of my angst is that if I just realize I just have to have faith in Jesus and everything's going to be fine. I don't have to worry. I can't please God with my works, and so I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to have faith in God, faith in Christ, and that's going to carry the day. And so to this very day, you've got various Protestant denominations out there saying, oh, those Catholics think they earn their salvation by their works. Well, that brings us to works number three. Works number three is going to be being baptized, receiving the Eucharist, going to Mass, saying our prayers, getting to confession, you know, participating in our faith, all right? So works number one is circumcision, dietary restrictions, observing Jewish feast days, Jewish purification rituals. St. Paul says, you don't have to worry about that anymore. 
Works number two, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, welcoming the foreigner, honor your father and mother, keep holy the Lord's day, things like that. Those are things by which we, those are works by which we will be judged. And finally, works number three would be our acts of piety and devotion and, you know, spiritual exercises such as sacraments and things like that. And so, again, that, that whole idea of works is something I think we have to be really, really clear about because you'll hear this all the time. You know, you Catholics think you earn your salvation by your works. And St. Paul says you're saved by faith apart from works. Well, it's like you're using that word works for completely different things. I believe, you know, like what the Bible says, I believe what St. Paul writes, that no, I don't have to obey the Jewish dietary restrictions. I don't have to be circumcised. I don't have to observe Hanukkah and Yom Kippur and Passover and things like that in order to be included in the covenant of salvation because that's part of the Old Covenant. I'm done with that. I still have to observe the Ten Commandments. And and again, 90 plus percent of the Old Testament still applies to us Christians. But there's those parts in there that just don't apply to us anymore. And those are the works that St. Paul talks about when he says you're saved by faith and not by works. And so when someone comes up and says, "You, you Catholics think you earn your faith by your works. No, we don't. All right. We believe that our faith comes about as the fruit of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then the way that we show God that we want to be included in on that covenant is by doing what Jesus told us to do. And that is to obey the commandments and to look after the needs of the poor and things like that. So, again, that works thing all by itself. I mean, I probably should have done an entire double-edged sword installment just on that one because that's a biggie. But just kind of, again, keeping your head in your mind, if you can keep this straight, you know, that we're using works for a whole bunch of things that don't really relate to each other, at least in the theological sense. Works one, those parts of the law of Moses, which we are no longer required to abide by, such as circumcision, purification rituals, dietary restrictions, and, and Jewish feast days. Works two, which we are required to keep, which are the spiritual and corporal works of mercy to instruct the ignorant, admonish the sinner, feed the hungry, welcome the foreigner, visit the sick, you know, clothe the naked, honor our father and mother, things like that. Works three, acts of pious devotion, you know, going to mass, receiving communion, going to confession, having, you know, getting our little kids baptized and things like that. Three different things. And so we have to be careful when people throw that around. Otherwise, they're confusing elephant trunks and tree trunks, you know. So that's that's works. Heart. This is a big one. This is one of my favorite ones. People say, follow your heart. Follow your heart. It's the worst advice anybody could ever get. The Greeks took heart, took the, took the, human, the human organism and split it up into three zones. There was the head, the heart, and the belly. All right. The head, which I'm sure comes as no surprise, is the center of intellectual and thinking. Our intellect, our will, our thinking, ideas and stuff live up in the head. The heart in the chest is the center of emotion and affect. And the belly, everything below the diaphragm, is concerned with sensual pleasure, you know, eating you know, good food, drinking good drink, sexual gratification and things like that. The thing of it is, is that, you know, when people say, well, we have to follow our heart, that means follow our emotions. And that's bad advice. Whenever people follow their emotions, whenever people are, are motivated by feelings of the, what they perceive of as love or fear, jealousy, anger, and things like that, it usually turns out very badly. And so we have basically we have heart, but it's describing two different things. We have one word for two different things. Heart number one is what the Greeks described as, you know, that part of the human anatomy, which is in the chest, which is concerned with affect, feeling, and emotion, all right? 
But heart number two, you know, kind of the Latin language kind of gives us a clue on this. The Latin word for heart is core, C-O-R, all right? And so, and that's the same word we have for like you talk about an apple core or the reactor core or the core of our being, all right? And so heart number two is where all these things come together. Heart number two is where the head, the heart, and the belly all come together, where they can all be ruled by the head, all right? Because like my belly might tell me that I want to eat that gallon of ice cream, but my head tells me, nope, that's not a good idea. Or my heart might tell me, I should give money to this person because they're suffering, but my head says, no, you shouldn't do that because that person's a drug addict, and you give them money, it's just going to make their situation worse, all right? And so... The heart in the truest sense, in the human sense, is core. It's where it all comes together and where everything comes together and fits together and makes sense. And so um, I think that whenever we hear that word heart and people say, you know, follow your heart, what's your heart telling you? If we're saying listen to and be governed by and base our actions on our emotions, that's the worst advice we can possibly get. But if we're looking to that part of our inner core, where my head informs my heart, which informs my belly, and my head tempers the heart and the belly and you know, makes them do what they should do rather than what they want to do, then, we, then, then we're on to something there that's quite a bit better. Finally, I want to talk about worship. This is kind of be the, going to be the crown jewel on this particular installment of Double-Edged Sword. All right? When we talk about worship, we say, well, we go to church to worship. We're here to worship God. Well, what does that mean? A lot of times, especially in, in a lot of you know Christian youth groups and so on, they'll talk about um, praise and worship. Well, we're going to have praise and worship. Well, what's praise and worship? Well, praise and worship means we get together and sing a bunch of songs and clap our hands and yell, praise Jesus, all right? Well, if you want to have the Bible camp sing around the campfire and you want to sing you know church hymns around the campfire at Bible camp, go for it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's fun. It lifts people's spirits, you know, and so on. That's fine. But you know what, folks? It's not worship, all right? And I think that we really need to have a very clear idea as to what worship is. Because, again, I hear this praise and worship nonsense all the time, you know, and, oh, we're going to have praise and worship music. There's no worship going on there at all, all right? It's something that makes us feel good about singing songs. And as long as you call it that, and as long as people know that, hey, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sing these songs, I'm going to feel good about it, then fine, no sweat. That's a good thing. But don't call it worship because it's not. Now, you're saying, well, then what is worship? Well, I'll tell you what it is. Worship, quite simply, is the humble submission of our will to the will of God, all right? I will give you three examples of worship from the Bible, going from the least to the greatest. The least, I mean, and these are all great. It's just that, you know, one is the greatest, one is great, and one is really, really good, all right? The really, really good one comes from the the book of the prophet Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says, you duped me, O Lord, and I allowed myself to be duped. I say that I will speak of him no more, but it burns inside of me, and I can't contain it. I must go out and proclaim him. In other words, so, you know, Jeremiah is saying, you know, God, you know, you, you kind of conned me into being your prophet, and all it does is brings me grief and pain. I would just soon not do this anymore, but I can't stop myself. I have to do it, okay? That's an act of worship. Here's the second greatest act of worship in the Bible. It comes from the Gospel of St. Luke. I am the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to your word. Our Blessed Mother, when the Archangel Gabriel asked her to come and be the mother of Jesus, I am the handmaid of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. That is, that young maiden placing her life totally at the service of the will of God. That's an act of worship, the second greatest act of worship in the entire history of mankind. And now, here is the greatest act of worship ever by any human being on earth. Are you ready for it? 
Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass away from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus in the agony in the garden. Folks, that is worship. That is the most supreme act of worship that anyone has ever done on the face of the earth in the history of mankind, and it will never be equaled. All right. But at least we know now what worship is. Worship is laying our will, our being, our wants, our desires at the feet of God and telling our Heavenly Father, whatever you want, I'm fine with it. I am your servant. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. That is worship. It's not getting out the drums and the guitars and doing the happy, clappy gospel good time hour of, you know, going on about, you know, singing and hooting and hollering and stuff like that. Nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do, but just don't call it worship because it's not. And so I think that whenever we go to Mass, if we're going to call Mass an act of worship, it has to include a heavy dose of us going into church with the intention of saying, God, I am here as best I can to try to discern your will and figure out what your will is for me, and then to ask and to beg for the grace to be able to do it, and more importantly, to be able to do it joyfully. So that's a bunch of words. That's something we can all think about. And um, we always want to encourage everyone, I always, at the end of every every program, always kind of remind people, you can always come to our website at www.dv, that's V as in Victor, dvmercy.com, and there are archived chapters or episodes of the Double-Edged Sword program, and you can listen to those at your leisure. Sometimes the time here on the radio goes pretty quick. This will give you a chance to kind of listen at your leisure, and if you want to stop the program and look things up, and you know, you can do it that way. And also, then you can feel free to email us or contact us at any time. You can call the station at 785-621-4110. So again, thanks for tuning in for this installment of Double-Edged Sword. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Goodbye and God bless. Goodbye.